Hey there, you're with Disembodied Podcast. This is Evie Escher. This week, my guest is John Lawyer, and John had to make a transition from being a warrior in Kuwait, Baghdad, and Kandahar for many years to being a universalist, a spiritual person. He was a counterintelligence special agent and an asymmetric warfare specialist during his service in the Army. He was responsible for coordinating various operations for a special USAF unit in Afghanistan for six years even. So he went from receiving a Bronze Star for counterterrorism operations to essentially trudging through a swamp of sadness afterwards. The happy ending here is that he later found a path that led to spiritual healing and awareness. Nowadays, he acts as one of several guides for Kishar, which is a nonprofit online spiritual community for people to share their journey and explore their own unique spiritual paths. John considers himself an omnist, and he believes in the validity of great human thought from around the world and across time. He offers individual spiritual guidance and coaching services as part of the Kishar spiritual community. This interview includes some talk of what it's like to be in a war zone and some geopolitics, but I know there are so many servicemen and women out there who might connect to John's story. It takes a lot of courage to stay in a war zone for many years, which he did. Then to unwind yourself from that experience takes another type of courage. So this is a great story. Sit tight. Here we go. John, welcome to Disembodied Podcast. It's great to have you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Evie. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to talking to somebody who's not only experienced war kind of on the inside, but also transformation maybe due to being involved in combat and the military and war scenarios. So maybe we should get into a little bit about how you saw yourself as a kid and you know what you believed in spiritually as you grew up before you even got to the point of being an adult. Uh, yeah, I'd love to start there. It's always interesting. I I grew up in a small town in central Oklahoma, about 8,000 people. I was raised Southern Baptist. Both my grandparents on both sides were, were Southern Baptist, but my parents were progressive liberals. So it was kind of an interesting way to grow up in the Southern Baptist church, but also in a liberal way. Actually, I, when I'd go home after Sunday school on Sundays and I, we would have Sunday dinner or, you know, Sunday lunch, they would actually ask me what was taught at Sunday school. And I didn't really want to talk about it because it didn't, didn't really interest me. And I realized they were trying to probably deprogram me uh, is what they were doing. <laughs> but uh, I was raised in the church. I never really felt God in the church. I never, I had big questions about hell and the wrathful God and the, all of this stuff and the, the difference between the teachings of the like red letter Jesus, right. In the new Testament. And, and then they would also go back to the old Testament, even though we weren't supposed to use the old Testament necessarily as, as Protestant Christians. So it was, it, it was all kind of weird to me, but I, I, I left the church, uh, as soon as I could when I was a teenager. And that was kind of my, my spirituality as a youth. I believed in something my mom used to talk about, even though she was Christian, she would talk about the God of many names. And I, that really resonated with me always. And my dad was into philosophy. He would read everything from Nietzsche to, to Marx. So, so I was exposed to some other different ideas as well. 
Yeah. It's nice to have parents that are broad-minded because, you know, it could have gone another way where they were always trying to push you into exactly what they believed. And I, I'm always really heartened to hear that some parents are just kind of like, okay, you know, let's look at this from a larger perspective and not get too clannish, you know, because clannishness is part of religion. You know, it's like, we believe this. And if you don't believe it, you're on the outside, right? You're not one of us. You're undesirable. And that is such an unfortunate feature of religion. I wish that we could somehow as a human group get over that, but I don't see it happening anytime soon. Yeah, I think that that's totally true. And I think that clannish thing that you describe is part of my experience is because I saw that the Southern Baptist, the, the first Baptist church in my town ran half the town and the other half mm -hmm. of town was, was run by like Church of Christ, you know, whether it was <laughs> uh, governance or, the, or the, the school board or, you know, whatever it was. And I, that really influenced me because there was, there was all the, these politics to it, right. And power. And it, I mean, this is only a town of 8,000 people, right. And you're watching it happen. And wow, that tribalism definitely has impacted me. And I think we're tribal creatures. I think that there is a, a natural tenant. We're herd animals, I believe, kind of to an extent as a yeah. whole, not, not individually, but as a whole. I think that there's some natural stuff baked into how we operate, but I also think that we just kind of accept it. Yeah. I think it's kind of like you grow up with it and you just don't question it too much until you're brought out of your family circle somewhat with life circumstances, or if you move abroad, um, you went into the military. That was probably a very expanding experience for you, I would imagine. It was. I, I had always wanted to see the world, experience the world. I had watched Lawrence of Arabia as a kid, and I wanted to do that. It fascinated <laughs> me. The desert fascinated me. He fascinated me. And so one of the reasons I joined the Army was to, to get out and go see things and experience other things and, I don't know, a sense of adventure and, and all of that. So how did you experience the military? Did, you, did it really resonate with you right from the beginning and you followed through with that same, you know, gusto or did it kind of wear on you? You know, I, I missed a lot of high school just, just by not going and I was a bit of a rebel. There's, I think, bets on whether or not I would graduate and, <laughs> you know, but I did graduate and I was a free spirit, you know, very much uh, Oscar Wilde, like life is too important to be taken seriously kind of kid. So the army was a really shocking thing to me. I knew that it would be. And before I went in, I, I kind of told myself, I said, you know, hey, man, don't don't lose yourself to the army because it will take you. And I kind of knew that I kind of sensed it before I went. And so I think I saw the army as something that where I could contribute to something that I kind of believed in at the time. Uh, an ideological nationalistic. I wanted to do counterterrorism and help people. It was kind of a very young, youthful idea that I could make the world a better place. But I also saw it as a means to an end to do some of these things that I wanted to do. So I, I kind of saw it from a reciprocal process. And so I went in kind of with the idea of I'm going to do this, but I don't want it to change me. That's awkward because yeah, it's going to change you. And there's <laughs> but, it did, such... but it did change me. There's such a um, intense like discipline and structure. That's what has always freaked me out about military as I thought that would just kill me because I am such a free-minded spirit that I feel that that would really crush me just to always have to do what they want you to do. 
I spent my whole entire time, whether I was in the army for five years or even when I got out as a civilian, I always did my best to get as far away. They call it getting as far away from the flagpole as possible. So as far <laughs> away from headquarters, as far as far away from the man as I could get. And I worked really hard and I was really driven. And when you work really hard in the army, it's a weird thing. People tend to ask more of you because you'll do it. But they also kind of leave you alone because they know that you're doing a job and you're doing it well, even if they don't particularly care for you because you're a rebel. <laughs> and I had my first sergeants never liked me. My, my senior enlisted guys were always on my ass, but I worked so hard so that I would just get left alone. And it kind of worked a little bit. It was fairly successful. So I was always like when I was when I was in Kuwait, I was only an E4, E3, E4, which is very low ranking. But I. I worked at the embassy for half my time and I worked with, you know, senior ranking military guys at the embassy and then some other like three letter agency guys on the other side. And so I did these really cool things and I was always working so hard so that I would keep being able to do those things. How do you view our presence in the world as a military force? Is it like a police force for the world? Essentially, do you feel that we're doing good work? I mean, I know this is you know, I, I'm not trying to corner you at all, by the way, by asking no, this. No, I, I just, I'm curious question. because I feel sometimes this country has good intentions, but then they kind of go wrong. And then other times I'm not sure of their intentions, you know, the, the military apparatus, let's say. I love your question. And I've seen a lot of the military industrial complex from the inside. And it's, it's a, a machine that grinds people away. And I think the U.S. military, the presence of it, has made the world a safer place in a lot of respects. It's done a lot of good, but it's an evil thing, and uh, it's a very dark presence. I don't think we can get around that. And I think the longer I was in it, the more that I saw it and was a part of it. And so I think that it takes its toll on the people that are in it. It's not just what we're doing from a humanitarian perspective to people around the world, like in Iraq or Afghanistan. And that's a huge part of it. It was hard to watch over time. It also eats the people up within it. You know, we sent a whole generation to war for 20 years, and I'm not sure we even today completely recognize the impact of that. You know, like we're veterans, you know, I'm not a huge, I'm not out in the world spiritually being a veterans advocate, but there's still veterans killing themselves every, what, the 22 minutes or it takes a toll. But, you know, and then you see people that are just living their lives in Afghanistan, farming, trying to take care of their families and we're, we're after them, you know? So I, yeah. there's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of darkness. I think it's complicated and I think the universe is balanced. And I think that it's not simply black and white. Cause I think that, that if you look at post-World War II and the, the fact that we've only seen regional conflict since then, that a lot of that is a testament to the hegemony and power of the U S military as an empire, because that's what we are. And so that's led to some peace and stability. I don't think we can undercut, but that doesn't, you, you don't get to just say that and then say, but there's not this whole piece over here that's so destructive, you know? When I think about war and stuff, I think about the weapons manufacturing and there's so many people profiting off of it around the world, not just the US, France, different countries. And it just doesn't seem, it's just very nefarious. I don't know. It, it's almost like, we're having wars so that certain people can profit off of it for sure. And I understand that conflict breaks out everywhere, 
you know, sometimes, and, you know, we have enough, we have a, a kind of a low level war in the U S we have a lot of people mass murdering others. That's kind of a low level war going on. And it's hard to get a grip with that to ever change it. And then other countries, you know, like the Ukraine and Russia, you know, having a serious conflict right now, you know, it's hard to know where it's all going. You know, you can watch the news and you can look at these conflicts and think, wow, the world's going to hell. You know, this is, we're just falling apart here. But then again, there is a certain order and we have had fewer wars. I understand that, you know, since World War II, like you said, things have been more regional conflicts. It's been more restricted. But I just feel myself like I respect some of our military might. I mean, I think it's amazing. The planes we have, all this equipment. I mean, it really is amazing. I can't help but be awed by it a little. Then again, I think, you know, this is basically to kill people or survey people, whatever it is. And I don't know. I don't know what to think about it anymore. I just know that things are changing and maybe the power dynamic is going to be more in favor of China in the future. Maybe the U.S. is going to be diminished somewhat. What do you think about that? I think maybe eventually. I think China has a lot of problems. I'm in my spiritual path now, but I still follow geopolitics a little bit just out of curiosity. Can't help myself because I've done it for 20 years. And I, I will say China has a lot of problems from a population standpoint. They're modernizing. Their people don't want to work in factories anymore. They want middle-class jobs. The second largest air force in the, on the planet is the U.S. Navy behind the U.S. Air Force. I don't, you know, so like the might of the U.S. military sometimes I think gets, if it's possible, it gets underplayed. When the U.S. Navy has the second largest air force behind the U.S. Air Force, that's a great statistic. And I think that China has the ability to potentially challenge the U.S., but uh, when you when you look at even military spending, the amount of money that the U.S. puts into the military versus anyone else is just staggering. And yeah. And what I've seen the U.S. military do, like just just resupplying Afghanistan, a landlocked country in the middle of nowhere in mountains and in desert for 20 years, just from a logistics perspective. That's the, the might of the U.S. military is we're so good at moving men, women and machines anywhere we want, whenever we want. And no one else really knows how to do that because they don't do it. We do it. And China doesn't really have an expeditionary right. capability, you know, so. And they have to cross, you know, the U.S., you got to cross two oceans to get to us. It gives us a lot of flexibility where we can station our stuff other places and we don't have to worry about protecting ourselves here as much. So I think we're okay. Yeah, logistics is huge. I realized that when um, Russia invaded Ukraine and they were doing like a play by play of everything Russia was doing wrong. And they were showing, you know, generals were showing on TV, like how they were exposing themselves on long roads and, you know, just getting bombed, like, you know, in a crazy way. And then the guys weren't trained well, so they were getting turned around. They didn't know where they were supposed to go. And I thought, wow, it really does depend on the, the ground forces to know what they're doing, to be highly, highly trained. And the logistical supply needs to be there and all of that stuff. I, it dawned on me, like, how organized it has to be. You can't just, like, roll in and demolish everything and expect to win, necessarily, even though you have a lot of power. Yeah, it's, I think it was General Omar Bradley, I think, you know, he said, you know, something about like mediocre military commanders or generals study uh, combat and the great ones study logistics or something like that. And that was, yeah, you know, that was like 80 years ago, 90 years ago. I don't remember. It was a long time ago. Yeah. Well, anyway, let's get into spirituality a little. I just had to kind of, you know, 
No, it's okay. I ask I you some military questions because it does fascinate me. Um, I, I think that's like the the guy side of me. I really like all that logistical stuff and thinking about planning things and executing things. It's very interesting to me. But um, what did you experience? You know, through your time in the military abroad, did you have sort of a spiritual awakening? Is that what happened? I I didn't have my what I would call my awakening until years later after I'd come back and healed for some time. My time in the military, I did lead with positivity. I was a very positive person. I think that helped me. Uh, I was also very kind. Uh, even at war, you can be kind and you can be kind to those around you. And so I think that those two guiding principles, I was kind of on a spiritual path, even if I didn't realize it at the time, like we're all on a journey, whether we know it or not. So I think that helped me, but I wasn't, I definitely wasn't on a spiritual path consciously while I was in the military. But the thing about that was what I will say is working a hundred, 110 hours a week, seven days a week for years on end, like living this whole lifetime. Like I was fully dedicated to my job. Like it almost takes an extremist to catch an extremist or a terrorist. Like, so like when you're that focused on something that is almost a religious experiment, it's almost a spiritual experience. I don't know how to, I don't know if that makes sense, but like when you're living kind of a purpose, I don't know if it was the best purpose, but it was my purpose at the time. There's something very, I think, touching about that. Even if it's, even if like, because you think you're doing this good thing when you're doing it and then you suddenly realize, oh, this is very dark. Um, But that doesn't mean that it wasn't moving, if that makes sense. Well, did you, I mean, were you like dreaming about it even when you weren't working? Was it just like a constant thing that's active in your mind? I was in it 100%. I was, I dreamed about my work. I woke up and did my job. Everything I did was dedicated to accomplishing my goal and the mission, especially when I was in especially well, actually Kuwait, Iraq and Afghanistan, but my six and a half years consecutive in Afghanistan, like I was there for six years and I didn't leave. The unit that I was in was, we were always busy. We were always doing something. Yeah, I, I lived in, in, in breathed it in, in a way that was hard to describe. How did you deal with like fear on an everyday basis, just in a, you know, to kind of protect yourself internally somehow, because, well, people are being blown up a lot or presumably, you know, maybe not right around you, but you heard of it at least. How did you deal with that fear that you were going to be blown up or shot or whatever? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that at the time, sometimes I I talk about this a little bit, but like when you're you know, when you're in the boiling pot and the water starts to get hotter, you don't really know it, you know, because it's a gradual process. And so, and our unit in Afghanistan at the time, Kandahar Airfield was the busiest runway on planet Earth. Like one plane landing and every 30 seconds, one taken off. And we had to keep the airfield going. That was our job was to protect it, to protect the people, to protect the aircraft, to keep the airfield running at all times. And it's a big job. It was like 50,000 people on base, billions of dollars worth of aircraft. And people were trying to attack the the base. And so it's almost like our job for us, it was kind of unique because our job was to protect the base. But at the same time, we lived on the base. So our job was to protect ourselves. And so I think dealing with, for me, dealing with the fear was going out and doing something about it. What, you know, one night, maybe to kind of better answer your question, we had this complex attack where they were shooting rockets at us. They, pe- they penetrated the fence line. We didn't know how many of them there were. We didn't know where they were. This is a huge base. No one knew what was going on. It was fog of war, mass confusion. And we all went 
everybody got sent to their bunkers, these concrete bunkers, away from our desk, away from our job and our, our access to information, the ability to do things. And everybody's kitted up. And I was terrified. It was terrifying. It was, our, it was the first time I'd experienced a complex attack there. At some point, they, they said we couldn't go back inside to our workspaces and start figuring things out. But I just walked back in. I just ignored them and walked back in because I needed to do something. I needed to try to help and try to help myself because this is my play, my play, my home as well. So I think that that idea that we were protecting ourselves, that we were doing this thing to protect other people, you just get lost in it. And then you push the trauma aside, you push the fear aside, you be brave. All these things were taught that are extremely unhealthy. <laughs> and I, I think that that's what I did. I mean, obviously that came with a serious price tag, but that's what I did at the time. So you kind of chose to maybe ignore the intensity of the emotion, basically, and just keep yourself busy and focused on whatever you had to do. Yeah. And I, I think I channeled it back into my drive to succeed and do my job as well. Yeah. It takes a lot of bravery. I mean, that is not the type of job for most people, I would think, because I would sense there's going to be a slow erosion of your mental health over time. And sometimes a fast erosion if you're the type of person who's not very stable. So, I mean, did you, did you see people really cracking under that pressure often? I did. I saw, I saw guys that came in and couldn't, couldn't handle it, that they got sent back home or, or lost it. I think most people handled it. And there's a couple of times I had a lot going on in my life at the time when I went back to Afghanistan. And even when I was in Kuwait as a, as a young soldier, like I was there for two and a half years out of my five-year enlistment, so half my enlistment. And at one point, my whole unit left. And they left me there because someone had to stay and do the jo do a job. And I volunteered. They all left. And then my wife left, my best friend left, and I was just by myself. And that was hard. And so I, I struggled with that. I had another struggle in Afghanistan that was kind of similar. I felt very isolated. So, and I almost cracked. I almost had it. I, I kind of did have a partial nervous breakdown, like in Kandahar, Afghanistan. I didn't tell anybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> a private nervous went, breakdown. Yeah, I, I went, I went to the, I did go to the Canadian medical tent and they gave me some lorazepam, <laughs> but you know, that was, that was the extent of it. Like here's some benzos. And I, you know, I, it wasn't many, they gave me like six and they took me to take half, half of a pill. And so I took 11 of, you know, 11 halves. And I kept that last half like wrapped in like masking tape in my pocket for the next two years, you know, just in case, like that's the brutality of it, you know, like, I don't know if that makes any sense, but. I, no, it I, does. I mean, it was like something to hang on to, right. A little bit of strength, yeah. but what gave you solace, you know, when you were trying to sleep at night, did anything, any type of spiritual concept even creep into your brain to give you solace? I felt an extreme brotherhood and sisterhood with the people that I was with, you know, on veterans day. Um, I always tell them that it was, it was always for them. Like it was for us, you know, like we got sent to this place and we were doing this thing and we were doing it for all these years and people we were being sent. And I think America forgot about it. And so who are we doing it for? Why were we in Afghanistan? There was no, there was no point for us to be there. I mean, like I have, I could go into geopolitics about Afghanistan and we could talk about that for days. We could justify it. Sure. But ultimately it was a political thing at that point. We've been there for so long 
And so there was a brotherhood and a sisterhood in it. I was doing it for them. I was doing it for people that I love because we were a family. And that I think is what people understand because there's movies about it and stuff like that, but it goes so deep. I mean, these people that I fought with that we were there for so long together. And I know so many of them, like we're still close, like all these years later. And I think that is what I, what kept me going. And I, there's something very, there's something very spiritual there. I mean, there was a kindness, there was a love and my job, cause I was there for so long. One thing that I resolved to do, I, I told you I was a positive person and here I am stuck in the swamp of sadness of Afghanistan. I resolved to have fun to use my own money and, and created a morale room with like a TV screen and, and, and get in video games and stuff just for a break for people, for our, our people that were there. And, tried to, you know, we had a card game, even though we were busy and we, we were always doing operations at night on Friday, I wouldn't schedule anything on Fridays <laughs> because we'd have a card game. We'd play Texas Hold'em. So I think that, did I feel something? Absolutely. I like, I felt a presence with the universe. I don't, I didn't know it at the time, but I felt something I can look back on it and say, oh, that was my connection with the divine. You know, in my last third Third of the time there, my last couple of years, I had read Shogun by James Clavell. And now that did touch me on a spiritual level. And so I think that was something that impacted me while I was there. Hmm. So you kind of, well, you eventually got out of the military and you had to sort of put your life back together again and deal with trauma, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, I went home after 15 years with 12 of that being overseas and I didn't really know who I was like I didn't have any identity beyond I and I was addicted to war like I would I would go to, I went to the VA because I needed help and they asked me are you addicted to drugs are you addicted to alcohol and it's like guys like I'm addicted to war like you how do you not understand this like and they they explained it to me a little bit like you you get rewired if this is a physiological thing like your amygdala your hippocampus like you get chemically biologically rewired you are addicted to war. Like, you know, adrenaline, they call them adrenaline junkies, right? Like there's no, you know, it's the same thing, right? Like you're, the world feels black and white because, I mean, I'm, I was living on an air base for six and a half years where there was always jets taking off and helicopters flying overhead. And we were trying to catch bad guys and quote unquote bad guys. I don't see them as bad guys anymore, obviously. But yeah, I was completely broken when I came home and I had to find a way not to heal, but just to find a way that I could start to heal. That was kind of the the place I ended up when I came home. So what helped you the most? Was it therapy or something else? Time helped a lot. I, time heal, does heal wounds. and But I, I ended up getting matched with a VA therapist who was into Eastern medicine, Eastern faith, which is was a mathematical improbability to happen. And she introduced me to mindfulness meditation, I found that incredibly empowering. She she did hypnosis on me. She was a certified hypnotherapist. She gave me the power of now to read, which didn't really mean anything to me back then, uh, <laughs> but it was a start. I've read it again since, and it obviously is a great book. But yeah, I wasn't able to wrap myself around mindfulness completely or the practices that she was teaching me, but it definitely helped me get through some hard times. I couldn't keep doing it because I didn't have the capacity to keep doing it. I didn't, I wasn't healthy enough to, to, but it did definitely stick within me, I think, and help me find my way back, you know, out of the, the darkness. Well, how long did it take you to do that? Do you think? 
Uh, I was home for seven years and about over two years ago now, I had a moment of understanding or clarity. People call it a lot of different things. And I knew I, I saw this like profound idea of loving kindness in the world of the connectedness of everything and everyone. And I understood what my higher purpose was, which is to help people help themselves find their wholeness inside and their light. And it was an amazing moment. It was a very spiritual moment. And I've been walking a very intentional, aware, and uh, way more peaceful spiritual path ever since. And I've been doing things every day to strengthen that process and understand it more so I could communicate better with people about it. And and that's when when I wasn't just okay again, but I was, you know, the best that I've ever been. You know, it's a, a whole sea change shift. Do you think you needed that experience in the military to get to where you are now? I think that when you look into the abyss and you see darkness and you see this dark thing, I think you have a much better perspective on where the light is and what light is. And so I think that I don't think everyone needs to go out and have a trauma. And I don't think that military trauma is any better or worse than any other trauma out there. I'm a big believer in trauma being equal. I do think people who have gone through trauma have this perspective on light. I think that's why you see a lot of people that are spiritual have had this trauma. And so I think that, yeah, I think that it helped me get where I'm at. And that's one reason I'm passionate about my own spirituality, but also helping others find their own way. Because if I can show them shortcuts or anything that worked, worked for me eventually that can help them not take as long as it took me, then, then that's great. And I think that there's people out there too that have lived trauma and don't even know it. I, I mean, I, I talk to people about that. We'll just be talking in a session sometimes and we'll come across trauma. They didn't even realize what the trauma. And so I think, but yes, I think that my time in the military absolutely changed me. I think it helped me become a more spiritual person. I think it was very informative. Do you have a desire to like, help people in those countries where we have a military presence, where you um, served your military time? I, I don't have a specific desire to help like Iraqis or Afghans specifically. I'll say that. I'll, I have a desire to help everyone. And I, I also believe that we have to break down those tribal barriers, those clannish barriers we talked about earlier, and we have to see the human inside of each of us. I think the best thing that I can do to change the world and make the world a better place for everyone, including people in Iraq, people in Afghanistan, is I got to love myself first. I have to take care of myself. And then I lift up with that loving kindness from within. I, I spread it around the world around me. I can change the world. I can change the world around me and I can lift the whole world up. And if it's just a little bit, then that's all we can do. And I think if I help others, they can do the same thing. I think we have to love our neighbor. I think we have to be humans. I think we have to realize that we're all human. I, I have to say that if I go to my neighbor and we disagree on 10% of things, we agree on 90%. I have to focus on that 90%, you know, that this common, we all want health. We all want our children to be happy. We want our communities to be successful. We want safety and security. We want joy. So yes, my desire is to help them, but in the context of helping the whole world.
Yeah, that's a good philosophy to have, I think. I feel people get really caught up in who's deserving of help and who's not. I think it's um, it's just one of those unfortunate things, facets of humanity, I guess. But um, a lot of Christians don't so much want to support Muslims. And, you know, there's that type of dynamic sometimes in the world. And I'm always very heartened by people that take a broader perspective and say, okay, everybody grows up with a religion whether they practice it or not, it doesn't really matter. But, you know, people, you, you got to take them on an individual basis. You can't just take them on a group basis and, and think, oh, they, all these people, you know, are essentially going to hell. And, you know, they're just, they live in a stone age style. So maybe they deserve to have all the problems they have. And you can't have such a cut and dried map of the world where some people deserve to live and other people don't. And so I, you know, I welcome your philosophy. I, I would say I'm in line with that as well, where, you know, try to help anybody you can and don't reduce it to uh, lines on a map or in neighborhoods or something like that. You know, always try to be a kind person and push that outward instead of, you know, some <laughs> overarching judgment that serves nobody. So you have a, an organization that you're part of called Kisher, right? Yeah, we, we call it Kishar. You can pronounce it either way, actually. It's uh, the Sumerian goddess of Mother Earth or Gaia. It, it also represents uh, the line on the horizon, which I think beautifully encapsulates the journey we're all on. Yeah. And so who did you come up with this or did someone else come up with it and you joined it? I started it with my wife, um, who, like I said, was with me a lot of those years overseas. And a friend of ours that we were with in Afghanistan who lives in the Balkans, she lives in Bosnia, and we, we operated together. And what type of work is this organization doing? Uh, we're a nonprofit and we're mainly an online spiritual community. And uh, our goal is to bring people together so that we can discuss spirituality, religion, self-help, philosophy, whatever it may be, whatever they're, you know, come as you are, bring your own uh, spiritual practice, your own unique path. And we can practice it together and have conversations, ask good questions, find answers have a place where people have meaningful, authentic human connection in a digital age, you know, and have a safe place where they can have conversations and interact. And um, we have, you know, everything from guided meditations and journaling prompts to spiritual roundtables on Zoom where we have conversations about stuff, ideas and, and concepts and kind of like we're all teachers, we're all seekers, that kind of thing. And we also offer individual one-on-one -on -one spiritual guidance coaching and all the funds from membership or from coaching and guidance goes all back into membership in the community and keeping the lights on and helping other members. And we're just trying to lift the world up, make it a better place. Yeah, that's great that it's nonprofit. Um, I think that's a great idea. You know, just keep it going and kind of spread the, the light and the teachings. And, you know, I assume it's not cultic type thinking where they have to agree with you. You know, it's, it sounds like it's open-minded and people can express themselves and disagree or whatever they have to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a universalist and ominous. That means I pretty much believe in whatever you want to believe. Like I, I believe that everyone should believe their own thing. I believe in the validity mm -hmm. of most spiritual constructs, most philosophies, most religions, like that's fine. I, especially when you release, remove the dogma and the red tape from it. I'm a big fan of removing dogma, right? Yeah, it's it's absolutely a universal approach to uh, spiritual practice. And I actually appreciate when people bring new perspectives in because I think that can help us 
because I think the universe is always changing. It's always in motion. I don't believe in absolutes, but I believe the only absolute may be that change in motion exists and that we're, we're always changing, we're always moving. And so that means the answer might change. That means my answer might change or someone else's answer might change. So yeah, absolutely. Definitely open. So do you feel like your cosmology has some sort of definition to it? I mean, it sounds open-minded, but do you believe that there's a concept of God or maybe the Absolutely. universe is kind of running on its own or? Yeah, I, I, I believe that within this like universalist ominous umbrella that you can have your own specific ideas, right? And I do my own kind of specific ideas within that are, I'm a big belief in the, I'm a pantheist that we're all connected. I believe in, I subscribe to a lot of Hindu traditions, not the personal gods like Krishna and like that, but like the impersonal Brahman or, or like the Tao, the balance of the Tao and Taoism. Yeah, I very much believe that the universe is God. I believe, I believe we're all part of each other. We're God. Nature is God. That tree or that plant are God. And so, yeah, I'm very spiritual from that perspective. I think our divine is ourself. And like I said, I think that's the that's the Tao of Taoism or the Brahman of Hinduism or Christ consciousness of Christianity. I can get behind mysticism and it feels like we're all saying very similar things when you read all these books. About different it does indeed. I, I wish religious, truly religious people would recognize that. Yeah. <laughs> they don't seemingly. So do you feel like you have an interaction with the spirit world at all? No, all the time. Absolutely. I'm very open to the universe. Um, I believe that's the divine. I believe it's our ancestors. I believe it's our children of the future. I believe it's it's not a linear thing, this universe of time and reality and everything. I have a very good relationship with it, I think. Most, most of the time, I still have my human moments. Uh, but yeah, I think that it's a really, truly beautiful thing. And I practice gratitude for it. I have my own rituals that bridge from this real world we occupy to the spiritual realm. And um, yeah, I feel very connected with with it. Do you feel like you receive visitation, whether in meditation or dreams from different spirits? I think that I do believe in communication. I don't, I, I can't tell you if it's individual spirits, if it's like many different parts of one, you know what I mean? Like there's all these different parts of this one thing, which I think I do subscribe to. And so I can't tell you that it's that I've interacted with X, Y, and Z. You know what I mean? I just see it as this like one thing that sometimes speaks in different ways. I think the universe is really interesting in how it approaches you and what it tells you. And that's why I always say that I have to be open to the universe because you just never know how it's going to come at you. And that's when I, I also appreciate like indigenous traditions and especially some Native American traditions, which I don't overtly practice, but I do yet let inform my own practice. Like, like they said, the connectedness, like that we aren't in nature, that we are nature, you know, like I read Breading Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, and that kind of was a life-changing book for me too. So it's definitely something that touches me. So what are your practices from day to day? I would assume you still do some sort of mindfulness meditation. But what I else do. beyond that? To, yeah, I try to meditate every day, twice a week. I do a thing where I'll shave my head and shave my beard and like I'll take a hot bath, bath pillow, candles. It's very meditative. Um, it's kind of like my, my like super me time. And it's very like, it's not completely mindfulness meditation. 
I find that it's meditative bathing though. And it's um, so relaxing. I feel very connected with everything when that's happening. I carry mala beads around with me. Uh, I cart them around my house and kind of, you know, cause we all, it's interesting that we have rosaries, we have mala beads, we have prayer beads in Islam. We got all these stuff. And it's all this, you know, it's very similar. So yeah. I, and I try to have, cause I've, I thought before I started carrying my prayer, my prayer beads, my mala beads around Hindu beads, like, how can I remind myself to be aware of X, Y, or Z that I'm trying to be more aware of or a habit I'm trying to form or a spiritual routine or just being present? I said, oh, I could carry, I could carry my mala beads around. It kind of works. Yeah. I guess you could tattoo something on your arm and look at it frequently too. That's another way. No, it's true. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I mean, I think it's great, right? How do you, like it's like being present in the moment or being aware and intentional. We have all these things in the spirituality that we're supposed to quote unquote do, right? How do we do that? Yeah. Like, like how do you remember to be intentional? How do you be aware of being aware? <laughs> so, yeah I, yeah, I think that I think a tattoo is a great idea, actually. Yeah, I've had certain rings. Like I used to have a really pretty moonstone ring that was made in India, and when I would wear it, it would remind me, you know, about spirituality. And I don't know what I did with that ring it's somewhere i have to dig it out but um i lost it for a while too and it was funny my cat had played with the ring and you know kind of pitched it under the refrigerator i guess and this was a long time ago when i lived in san diego and when i moved out a couple months after i moved out the former property manager was nice enough to give me the ring back he said i found this beautiful ring under the refrigerator and it must be yours, you know, it must've been yours. And I said, yeah, that was mine. And so it came back to me in such a nice way. And I thought that's a special ring. <laughs> I love that story. I love that story. It's a great story. And it was my, it was my diabolical little kitty, you know, um, trying to get rid of it, but hid it in a place where it would be found and brought back to me. So it's great. <laughs> that, that's, that really is wonderful. Yeah. It's a cute story. So do you think that you are going to expand in different areas spiritually? Are you, do you think you're kind of holding steady with your current practices or do you see yourself going in another direction? Because it sounds like you're open enough to maybe change in a surprising way. I'm always open to changing how I practice my own spirituality. If there's other rituals that I find that, and I, I see things that are really interesting. I, I think there's great things in sound. I, you know, I, I think that whether it's light work or, or Reiki or energy work, things like that, I definitely believe in all of the, the manipulation of energy in the world. So yeah, I'm, I'm always open to seeing new things that can change how we kind of walk through this, this world that we're in from a real perspective and how we walk our spiritual path and what that intersection looks like and how we can use stuff that, that people are experts in to kind of shift that experience. It sounds like you were open to kind of an integration of Western therapy and Eastern spiritual practice as well, which, you know, is probably a good combination because you can take the best of both worlds. And, you know, I assume that it was a long process to kind of get over some trauma and maybe you're still going through it to some extent on a small level. But what do you think was like the most useful thing that really took you away from the trauma? It's a really good question. Uh, let letting go. It's one of those things that's way easier said than done. Yeah, uh, it is. <laughs> but letting go, you know, letting go of the past, letting go of the future, 
learning to, to have forgiveness of yourself and others, learning to have non-judgment of yourself and others. Like when you're living that forgiven, that non-judgmental way of life, oh my God, it's like so freeing. It's it's not caring. I mean, like, I think really to answer your question, one day, this is several years ago, this is even before I became overtly spiritual, I said, you know what? I don't give a fuck anymore. I'm sorry, I can't say that. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's my bad. I'm sorry, but uh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But I just didn't care anymore. And I think that that was when I really was on my, like, I really started in earnest being spiritual. I didn't even know it. And I didn't really care what happened. And it was, this is not in a bad way necessarily. I just stopped being attached. These attachments that we have pierce our reality in really bad ways. And so if we can sever these attachments that we have, especially these negative ones, suddenly our reality becomes better because it's not poking holes in our reality bubble that we have around us. So I think severing those attachments, letting go is so powerful. Yeah, it is. Sometimes when I'm driving down the freeway, I'll think, what if I just stopped getting aggravated about this, that, or the other thing? And it's like revolutionary. What if I just stopped even responding or reacting to something? It is like a very powerful thing. And you know, most days I think I'm somewhat under control, but I do have my bad days <laughs> where sure. something will get a hold of me. Yeah, same. And that's when we have to re- rely on our base practices and and stuff to say, oh, I, I can recenter myself here. I can reground myself. I have the same experience. It's not that everything's lost if you have a bad day. It's that you just go, okay, I need to remember some things. And that's all it is. You have to, you know, realign yourself with who you want to be. And that's a daily task. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and we have to, we're not all going to go live in the Himalayas. We're not going to live in a monastery. So we have to live in the real world. Right? How do we do that? I think that's really important as we walk this path is how do we live in the real world in a good way? Yeah. Well, I'm very happy to hear that not only did you come away from a war experience, wiser and more spiritual, but also you want to share what you've learned with other people, because I think that's a huge part of being on earth is maybe to share things and not just keep it all to yourself. That's such a big effort that you have a nonprofit organization, wonderful endeavor that you're doing. So I really applaud you. And I thank you for coming on and sharing, you know, with the audience here, what you're doing. Uh, That's good work. Well, thank you. And you know, I, I want to say that I really appreciate your brave questions because I think a lot of people don't like to talk about war or some of that dark stuff. And I think that you asked really good questions about it. You were willing to talk about it. And I, a lot of people aren't. So I appreciate that. I guess I try to understand, you know, when I watch the news, what people are experiencing in different parts of the world. And, you know, my heart goes out to a lot of people in the world. This is why I really don't want to watch the news constantly because it's it's very heartrending the different regions of the world that are afflicted with violence on a major scale. Um, It's hard for me to, to deal with that in a way, but I do always want to know what was it like being in the military? And, you know, I can kind of picture like how I would respond to that situation, but I, I know that I would have a deep fear of, you know, just the, the chaos level is, is almost too much to deal with. I think that level of chaos and, you know, there are chaotic places in the U S too, but when you're actually in a war zone where missiles are dropping around you and 
grenades are going off. That's, you know, it's something that I hope I don't have to experience in this life at least. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, we will put a link to Kishar. Is it Kishar or Kishar? I think I'm pronouncing it wrong. It's Kishar. We say Kishar, but it, it actually can be pronounced either way. Okay. So we'll put a link to your organization, Kishar, in the show notes for this episode. And um, again, I thank you for your service and your expansive consciousness in the U.S. We need it. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah, thank you so much. And I appreciate that. Again, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. It's really great. Please leave your questions or comments for this episode or any other episode at disembodiedpodcast.com. Thanks so much.